Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Jennifer Varsley, Assistant Professor of Law at Durham University and a researcher at Cambridge University. We'll be discussing her article, The Effectiveness of Disclosure Law Enforcement in Australia, which is forthcoming in the Journal of Corporate Law Studies. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Jennifer, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Jennifer, I was really excited to read this piece as a comparative piece from my perspective about securities regulation and enforcement. Uh, I was excited to get the Australian perspective on that. But I wondered if before we start talking about the core of your article, if we can maybe level set a little bit in securities regulation, what is the point of disclosure? And what is the point of disclosure enforcement? And this might be an Australia-specific question, but maybe also a kind of a universal question as well. I think perhaps universal. I think that in studying disclosure laws, they really aim to ensure the reduction of information asymmetries, and that is, you know, where one party has more or better information than another, and also to ensure the accuracy of share prices. And they are are really, I think, viewed as critical in their investor protection function as a result of that. And I think when you look at the reduction of information asymmetries through accurate share pricing, this tends to be linked to increased market liquidity and also reductions in the cost of capital, which is certainly desirable. And I think empirical research confirms across jurisdictions the importance of disclosure laws as a regulatory strategy. But there is ongoing discussion regarding the precise scope of such regulation, also the degree of financial market effects flowing therefrom. That's not you know, necessarily very precisely defined. But if we look at this as a regulatory strategy, I think its success, once again, across jurisdictions is really predicated on enforcement. So that is to say, we might say that the importance of disclosure regulation is directly linked to this question of enforcement. In looking at some of the literature around enforcement or scholarship here, if there is a low probability of sanction when infringements occur, then the deterrent effect we're likely to see directly result from the imposition of such laws is likely to be minimal. And therefore, agents are unlikely to be incentivized to really comply with regulatory requirements in future. So that is the deterrent effect of a legal rule is seen, I think, as a function not only of the size of the potential penalty, but of the probability of its enforcement. And, you know, we might put the caveat that this is assuming the operation of rational choice theory, but therefore directors and officers are likely to be motivated to think about the potential costs of infringing conduct if it is is likely that there will be an ex post sanction. And then they may be expected to reevaluate prospective behavior. And hopefully by doing so, this will prevent potential loss. For listeners who may not be familiar with Australia's system of securities disclosure and enforcement, could you give us a little bit of a lay of the land in terms of what that looks like? Is it a federal system? Is it a public enforcement system? Is it private? Or is it a combination of those? 
Yeah, certainly. So I think at the outset, we might say it is a federal system in terms of the way we regulate our corporations law and securities law. It's all under one piece of federal legislation. And we tend to do so, at least in the disclosure law context, in looking at corporations and securities laws within the Corporations Act 2001, which is a federal piece of legislation. And in terms of enforcement, there is a public enforcement system with quite a strong regulatory body known as the Australian Securities and Investment Commission, or ASIC for short. And I think um, this is sometimes compared to the SEC. I think in some of the comparative literature, we've seen from an Australian perspective that the intensity of our enforcement, when we look at it on per capita GDP adjusted basis, this tends to be viewed as quite strong and, and we might compare ourselves to the SEC a little bit. And there's also private enforcement available. But I think traditionally speaking, and, and this is one of the things that for me motivated this project, it's been viewed as the Australian system is having a, a low level of private enforcement and a high level of public enforcement. But more recently, I'd say in the last five to 10 years, there's been a lot of media attention to securities class actions, a lot of directors saying they're fearing you know, liability and they're thinking of resigning board positions. And so we really see, at least anecdotally, that private enforcement rates are increasing, yet there's not much empirical literature to kind of back that up. So we do have this dual system. So I might, you know, I call it in you know, another piece I wrote, the duality of enforcement or the duality of enforcement modalities in that there's private combined with public public enforcement and a federalized system. In terms of the Australian context of the laws, more specifically, and also the disclosure laws that I look at in my article, I focus on the continuous disclosure laws, and these aim to promote financial market efficiency and integrity. As, as I spoke about before, another major aim is to accurately inform share prices and engender investor confidence by ensuring that the market is fully informed. And further to this aim, uh, securities regulation in Australia requires that any price-sensitive information is publicly disclosed in an efficient and a precise manner, and that selective disclosure is prevented. And so if we look at where these obligations lie, so this is in that federal piece of legislation, the, the Corporations Act, so the continuous disclosure obligations are in Chapter 6CA of the Corporations Act and, and also in Chapter 3 of the ASX listing rules. So our, that's our major stock exchange in Australia. And the specific section is Section 674, Subsection 2, and Rule 3.1 of the listing rules requiring any listed company to immediately disclose any information which is not generally available that a reasonable person would expect to have a material effect on either the price or the value of the company's securities. And just to make a comparative note here, I believe it's not, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not my expertise, but this is similar from my understanding to a Form 8K SEC filing in the U.S. And also, yeah, and also, is that right? Yeah. And yeah, and also similarly, this is contained, if we look at the UK context, this is in Chapter 7 of the UK FCA listing rules. Although in Australia and in the UK, there are no specified disclosure items as there are in the US. And, and certainly we might say that this requirement is found in a corresponding form across many jurisdictions. And certainly, for example, in Europe, it's also there. And, and so the, the continuous disclosure provisions thus 
really give this clear guidance on the requirements for directors and companies to keep the market and investors well informed with the aim, as we said, of reducing these information asymmetries, increasing confidence in the markets and improving individual accountability, supposedly, you know, of directors at the individual level, as well as uh, companies themselves. But when we look at the disclosure requirements, certainly we would say that this is not the only requirement in the Australian context, but I chose to focus on this because this mandated continuous disclosure obligation, due to its broad drafting, due to its broad scope and broad coverage, has resulted in it being used almost as a catch-all provision in Australia, with securities class actions frequently pleading disclosure breaches just almost as a matter of course where any sort of share price drop occurs. So, for example, I know we've not got to the data yet, but just as a relevant point, within the data set I have of the private enforcement side of things, so this is our federal court class actions, so 41% of all class actions filed in the Australian federal court, and this is across all action types, not just securities laws, 41% of them included allegations relating to continuous disclosure failures of this sort. So I think, you know, that's really interesting then to look at that because of just the scope of its application. And as mentioned, you know, in terms of enforcement, we have both a private system of enforcement and what has been viewed as a strong system of public enforcement. Yet once again, you know, with a little bit of uncertainty as to what do each of these systems really do? Like what do each of the modalities achieve? Are they doing similar things or different things? Is it just that ASIC is a really strong regulator and enforcer? Or now that we see increasing levels of private enforcement, you know, is this really adding to the goals of the system, for example? And that's why I think, you know, bringing those two data sets together in a comprehensive way was a real goal of mine with this research. So you mentioned some of the motivations for this paper and the two data sets that you use. Could you describe some of the empirical questions that you set out to answer and what the data sets were and how you use them and kind of what your methods were? Great question. So firstly, I wanted to, I think as a, you know, this is not directly measurable as an empirical kind of result, but I wanted to comprehensively examine the enforcement landscape in Australia across both these modalities. So just to give you a kind of background or lay of the research scholarship in this area in Australia, most papers focus on either one or the other of these enforcement modalities. So that is to say there are some great papers on public enforcement, some really interesting papers on private enforcement of these disclosure laws, but there's only one other paper that tries to bring them together in a comprehensive way. And with that paper, there were, you know, quite clear gaps in its public enforcement coverage. And it also is a little bit dated in the time frame it covered and wasn't able to capture the increasing significance of litigation funders. So for me, as a first And maybe most important aim, I wanted to say, like, let's have a look comprehensively of all enforcement actions, public enforcement, private enforcement, class actions. You know, ASIC brings a number of different actions. It's not just litigation. You know, there's an infringement notice, for example, that they can give, which just says to a company, we think, you know, know, you're not doing this right. We want you to pay a penalty. And then there's no acknowledged breach of the law. So the company paying the penalty doesn't mean that there has been a breach of this uh, section 674, but it kind of is a way to deal with it quickly. And so just understanding, you know, where the enforcement actions coming from and what are they doing was the first thing. 
And I think, you know, the next thing was saying, okay, now we've got these data sets, but what do we want to take from them? And I think the next thing was to say, well, is this particular mix of enforcement modalities and action types effective? And then I think, you know, a, a lot of people say, and some of them are your colleagues at Stanford, say, well, you can't measure effectiveness. Everyone says that to me, and I understand that. So uh, I think, you know, the analytical framework I developed to analyze this was whether, first of all, the actions compensate for shareholder losses. Secondly, do they deter agents from misconduct? And third, do they provide an informational or signaling function? And I understand that this is tricky, even within these three metrics, because um, from an empirical perspective, only one of those three things is capable of direct measurement, assuming data availability, and that is compensation. So the first metric, as mentioned, which I examined, is whether these actions, regardless of whether private or public enforcement is deployed, are able to compensate for investor losses. The second, in looking at deterrence, while in deterrence theory and enforcement theory, you know, it's, it's widely acknowledged, irrespective of the jurisdiction, that deterrence is a key metric of any successful enforcement framework, it's not possible to specifically calculate the deterrent impact of a law. I mean, certainly this can only indirectly be analyzed from an empirical perspective. And this is because it, there is no way to quantify the total number of infringements as there will always be a percentage of undetected breaches of any given law. And it's also not possible to isolate the effective enforcement actions on those infringement levels. So that is to measure ex ante behavioral changes by directors or officers to avoid infringements. Given that, you know, it's everyone knows, you you know, agents are not going to systematically and may very well never disclose this. You're not going to say to your friend, oh, you know, I was going to breach this law, but then I saw the penalty and the, you know, the probability of enforcement and just decided against this. <laughs> um, but so what I think what I tried to do within that metric was I think the constructed data sets do make it possible to test whether enforcement levels are sufficiently high to suggest that they are likely to have a deterrent effect in the disclosure law context. So, you know, that is, as previously mentioned, when we were talking about enforcement, the importance of enforcement, generally, the deterrent effect of the legal rule is seen as a function not only of the size of the potential penalty, but of the probability of its enforcement. So that's what I was taking. If we look at what is the probability of the enforcement of these laws, you know, per year based on the data set, we can kind of say, is this likely to make people stop and think about what they're doing? Or is it too low to have any, you know, kind of tangible impact? And I think relevant to this assessment of deterrence, although it, once again, it's not easy to measure, are the availability of both DNO insurance and company indemnification agreements. So similar to the US, these are, are commonplace in Australia. However, the Corporations Act in Australia does limit the coverage of such liability shields. So the Corporations Act uh, prohibits indemnification of a liability to the company and liability for a pecuniary penalty. So this is the financial penalty in an ASIC-led claim or a compensation order, among other things. So I think that, you know, at least theoretically, it's good that we do see some limits to the coverage of these things. And then the third metric I sought to examine was whether enforcement actions at 
filing dispute or outcome or settlement stage, depending on whether we have a settlement or a judgment, carry an informational function. I call this the enforcement signal, quote unquote, which may be viewed as a supplementary form of disclosure. So uh, I view this as, so for example, you have ASIC brings an action and they tend to publicly post on their website, this goes to the media to say that we are you know, investigating company X, or we have launched an action against company X. We have started a trial, for example. And so all of this type of information, you know, really conveys information about director conduct to the board, to shareholders and to third parties, which can in turn inform decision making and and help to reduce information asymmetries before you get to the time of a judgment. And that I thought was something that hadn't really been examined to a great degree, certainly not in the Australian context, but maybe important. I thought, you know, when you look at this, the enforcement signal can be used in addition to share prices, to accounting profits and to other governance signals. And while share prices and accounting profits are common linked to director decision making, they are equally dependent on exogenous variables which are not correlated with director conduct. And additionally, there is evidence of market failures or market inefficiencies where share prices do not react to information or non-information in an accurate or an immediate manner. So I think combining all available signals will result in a more complete picture of director conduct and hence more informed decisions and governance measures may result from this. In terms of where this is from, so this is an application of the informativeness principle, which utilizes contract theory to show that it is optimal to use the maximum number of accessible signals in order to increase the signal to noise ratio. So therefore, we might say that the use of governance mechanisms, such as, for example, we might say displacing an underperforming director through an election or even an action towards improving internal control systems, these types of things may be facilitated by an increase in raw information that comes earlier in the process, you know, before you see a settlement or a judgment or possibly even after. And the marginal benefit of this enforcement signal, however, is going to be dependent on the quality of existing signals and the corporate governance and enforcement context. So, you know, there are further issues that we'd want to look into, but uh, in a nutshell, I think this is something we can look at, you know, in terms of if you have a private enforcement action, this is unlikely to be widely publicized in comparison to a public enforcement action where ASIC releases these kind of point in time statements publicly and to the media to kind of say what's happening with the action, how it's progressing, if any penalties or settlement has occurred. And that I think is really interesting. The data sets here enable this metric to be tested by reference to whether the observed enforcement actions are both launched and made public in a timely manner whether they occur within a solvent company. So, for example, if it occurs within an insolvent company, this signal is coming too late for it to be of any real benefit. Do they provide a judicial or third-party evaluation of director conduct? So having that independent evaluation of director conduct adds to the strength of that signal. And do they result in a rich information generating mechanism such as discovery and or a final judgment? So these types of things I could look for within the data sets themselves. What key findings did you find from this empirical research? 
Yeah, sure. And I think, you know, even perhaps it might be useful before I get to the findings to just briefly discuss the data sets, which I believe you may have asked about <laughs> before. <laughs> so um, the two data sets that I got the results from, so two data sets were constructed. So these comprise both private and public enforcement for further examination, and they aim to have comprehensive coverage over the respective study periods. And as mentioned, this just has not been done before in Australia over this time frame. And here, what we saw, I think I was lucky in that in Australia previously, comprehensive private class action data is generally not made available. And this is whether in relation to judgments, filed cases or settled cases. So a lot of the limitations with previous studies that even just purely look at private enforcement and don't consider public enforcement is that they take from the most um, widely publicized or famous cases in the media and they kind of pick and choose. They'll say, oh, this study will say, you know, I'm just looking at 10 cases uh, within the last five or six years. And, and, and that's been because you can't get the universe of cases. However, I was lucky in that a point in time case database was released by the Federal Court of Australia. So this was inclusive of the federal and all state registries, and it provided the filed case date, title, and party names, as well as access to selected filed documents. So this database had all of the class actions across all action types. And, and this, you know, then allowed me to do an additional investigation. So then I could investigate and see, you know, within the filed documents, which of those dealt with disclosure law issues or were, were dealing with securities laws in general. And then from this, I constructed a comprehensive data set of the actions before the federal court as at the point in time date was the 24th of September 2018. And this, I think, you know, was great. It allows for an understanding of the extent of formal private enforcement relating to disclosure laws and enabled me to fill the gaps in previous studies and then on the public enforcement side of things, so this data set was constructed by just conducting wide-ranging searches within ASIC annual reports, ASIC media releases, ASIC enforcement outcomes. So they, they release a number of these reports and just, you know, kind of going through all of these and getting the, the relevant data on disclosure law actions, as well as general media searches. Previous studies had included public enforcement data up to the 30th of June 2016, and my data set covered the 1st of January 2016 up to the 30th of June 2019. And then, you know, having these two data sets made it possible to discuss the relative deployment of private enforcement versus public enforcement in the Australian context of disclosure laws. And as mentioned, this was exciting for me because it, you know, because of the comprehensive nature of its coverage of, you know, across class actions and ASIC actions, you know, over a period of time, which has not been examined by previous literature was, you know, it, you know, it's exciting when you find something that no one's done exactly before. And it's also thought to be the first study which provides context regarding class action settlement size by reference to the market capitalization decrease and also looking at the context of enforcement since the judicial approval of third-party commercial litigation funders, which removed numerous procedural barriers to private litigation in the Australian context. And, you know, then this allows me to look at that in parallel to the ASIC actions and also to the knowledge that there were some resource decreases that occurred within ASIC budgets over this same period of time. So there were some regulatory statements at that time saying, you know, if ASIC can't take on a claim and 
private enforcers can. You know, ASIC was actually saying maybe this is a good thing. You know, maybe it's a positive thing that we have more private enforcers act where we cannot take steps to bring an enforcement action at that point in time. Going back to your question in terms of what were the key findings from the empirical studies, in terms, first of all, of compensation, in relation to the remedies sought in the private enforcement actions, compensation was pursued and settlements predominate in that data set. So in contrast to the public enforcement actions, broader remedies are simply unavailable under Australian law, so it's compensation that these actions are always seeking. And the empirical analysis I was able to undertake of settlement findings in the data set indicated that the degree of investor loss coverage is tiny. So in order to provide some context regarding the size of these settlements, I illustrated that within the article by measuring them up against the market capitalization decrease, as briefly mentioned before. So that is where settlement data and stock decline information is available taking into account then legal costs and litigation funder commissions, the mean net recovery amount is less than 4% of the market decline. So uh, based on this finding in the private enforcement context, compensation simply does not provide loss coverage. And with, I'll jump in uh, on myself here and say that this is not to say that full loss coverage is desirable, But this information is currently absent from the Australian literature, so I think it's useful to give context to this. In relation to this calculation, because I know that this is discussed a lot in the US literature, so I would say that this calculation specifically represents the relationship between the net settlement amount and overall investor losses based on the decrease in the share price and not the smaller loss directly referable to misleading or delayed disclosures. So, I mean, certainly that should be acknowledged. And further, not all shares which form the company's market capitalization are held by class members, only those that were purchased during the class period and not sold during the class period. But I can't disaggregate that from this calculation. But once again, from my perspective, the aim was just to provide an idea of the context of the settlement by providing this measurement, even though it has its limitations. And this level of compensation can be compared with US figures. So NERA economic consulting reports indicate a median settlement to investor loss coverage of 2.6% in 2017 and again in 2018. And those figures are before the subtraction of the full cost that investors are subject to. So somewhat similar to the US context in terms of less than 4% and the US figures being around 2.6%. In terms of deterrence, so in relation to case frequency, the empirical findings are that there is a 0.22% probability that a publicly listed company will have a class action filed against it. And there is a 0.04% chance that a publicly listed company will have one of its directors named a defendant in a filed case. So for me, this indicates that the observed enforcement intensity is unlikely to carry a deterrent effect. You're looking at 0.04. This is, you know, I mean, it's not, I can't specifically quantify. We can't say that a certain percentage is going to tell us 
whether or not that deterrence metric is achieved, but certainly something that low seems very unlikely to carry a strong deterrent effect. This, however, exceeds the private enforcement intensity found in the UK, which previous research indicates is even closer to zero, and it appears to be more similar to the US findings. However, the US findings indicate a greater enforcement intensity still. However, the probability of enforcement is only one aspect of what we might look at in relation to the overall deterrent impact of a system. So in looking at the analytical framework, I also wanted to go a little bit beyond this and push on this point. So I think the second important metric in respect of deterrence relates to whether the parties engaging in the misconduct are actually targeted in these enforcement actions. So here the findings indicate that 21% of the private enforcement actions name directors or officers as defendants, which shows that these cases are equally directed at those responsible for the misconduct, therefore increasing the likely deterrent impact of the enforcement. And while it may be argued that, look, you know, people might say 21%, that seems like a low figure when it comes to targeting actions towards individuals. Uh, I think, you know, here this analysis has to be coupled with the public enforcement actions in the data set to form a more complete picture of the operation of the system as a whole. And perhaps surprisingly, and I say this because ASIC is generally viewed as doing a better job at you know, achieving enforcement aims and achieving deterrence as an aim, in the public enforcement context, in those actions within the data set, only 27% specifically targeted directors or officers, which I think may be surprising to people that are familiar with the Australian system. So the other actions, even from ASIC, all focused on company breaches and remedies. And this, you know, therefore reduces the likely deterrent impact of the enforcement actions. And actually, when we look at public enforcement actions and combine them with our private enforcement actions, there's only, I can only observe a small increase in deterrence targeted towards directors as a whole. And in relation to the remaining actions, focusing on the company itself, unless the public nature of such actions is viewed as increasing the reputational sanctions and perhaps creating a stronger signal, these are also unlikely to have a significant deterrent effect. It might be worth noting that there was also, in a number of these cases, there was at least one type of parallel ASIC action. This was in 33% of the private enforcement cases, and 62.5% of the parallel enforcement actions did actually target directors or officers, evincing a, a probable or more likely deterrent effect in a comparably higher proportion of these actions. So I think at least that we might take as a positive from that perspective. And when we look at the type of actions, I think that that's something perhaps interesting for those not as familiar with the Australian side of disclosure law enforcement. So where public enforcement is observed in the disclosure cases, the actions largely involved administrative sanctions as opposed to litigation. So within the actions brought in within the data set, only eight of them were litigated civil or criminal penalties, meaning that 64% of the actions were out of court. 
And the infringement notice, which I mentioned, which is just, you know, a financial penalty that a company pays and without the acknowledgement of a breach of the law, this was utilized more than alternative types of enforcement, comprising 41% of the actions observed in the data set. And here only six actions specifically targeted directors or officers. So that once again leads us to kind of conclude that there is likely to be a lower deterrent effect when we're not actually targeting those responsible for the misconduct. And when we look at where the in-court actions are, private enforcement predominates. So these results are consistent with existing theory, not specific to Australia, but existing theory suggests that coordination costs may be expected to affect the likelihood of private enforcement by shareholders. And there was a market increase in commercial litigation funders and institutional investors likewise increased their holdings and activism over the study period. So it may be that these developments assisted our private parties to overcome coordination costs and to avoid the effects within Australia of adverse procedural and cost rules. And something that I think is really interesting finding from this study is that perhaps surprisingly, compared with previous literature reporting on commercial litigation funding, Every single one, so that is to say 100% of the securities class action cases in the data set are supported by litigation funding agreements. And so I think that's something, you know, as a takeaway from the data set is really interesting. So I think that we might say that this system of disclosure law enforcement in Australia finds a rather interesting mix of modality deployment with a combination of public enforcement actions and class actions filling what would previously have been thought to constitute a low level of private enforcement in Australia. And so what I say, I think, you know, we're not there yet, but it may be the case, uh, the argument that I kind of make here is that may be the case that Australia is moving closer to becoming a functional analog of the US system of corporate law enforcement, given the deployment now that we see of both private and public modalities of enforcement in the disclosure law context, uh, with litigation funders seemingly substituting for contingency fee agreements. I should note, because in Australia, these are prohibited and adverse cost rules, you know, helping to overcome adverse cost rules and hence still incentivizing increased rates of litigation. And so for me, just, you know, one take home point, I I have many, but one (laughs) that I'll just briefly mention here is that while numerous commentators in the Australian context have argued and continue to argue for increased penalty amounts and recent legislative reform has lifted previous penalty caps, From what I found within this empirical study, this seems to miss the point. From my perspective, what we see from these data sets is that the clear message for ASIC and policymakers is that actions should be redirected to target those parties who are responsible for the misconduct, at least in addition to the corporate defendants. And this seems to be of particular importance in the disclosure law context where deterrence can increase enforcement effectiveness where compensation is unachievable or ineffective. So, yeah, so I think that ultimately I conclude that the system supports the argument that we see a valuable signal by the credible conveying of information about director conduct. However, we do not see that compensation is achieved, as mentioned, and it also likewise does not appear to be the case that deterrence aims are achieved. Once again, with the point that I'll make that this argument advances obviously suggestive rather than conclusive with the data analysis, providing reasonable evidence in support of the effectiveness 
premise of the Australian system. So I think that we need to then, as you know, from an Australian perspective, it indicates that policy and legislative development really needs to start to take into account the relative contributions of each enforcement modality rather than what is currently done, which is the evaluation of the effectiveness of each modality or the system as a whole in isolation. Because we see from this research is that a different picture of the effectiveness of this system emerges when both modalities are analyzed from an evidence-based perspective. So from this, I think that there are three important messages for policymakers. First, Both public and private enforcement matter as a means for reducing information asymmetries and ensuring accurate share pricing. Second, the fact that we see over the study period different types of enforcement strategies and shareholder patterns have predominated suggests that there are substitution effects between different modalities of enforcement and likewise complementarities between the mode of enforcement, the involvement of litigation funders, and the degree of dispersion of share ownership. And third, and perhaps most importantly, the significance of both public and private modalities of disclosure law enforcement really implies that inferences about a system drawn solely from either public or private enforcement are likely to be misleading. And so that, I think, was a big take-home message from the results. Are there any key thoughts you'd like our listeners to have from this conversation? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. So a lot, probably more than how much time we have. I think that... Something I think is interesting, which hasn't been considered in Australia as of yet, is that there are, in the U.S. context, I think very many well-founded theoretical criticisms of the role of compensation of insecurities at class actions in particular. And I think that it would be valuable for, I think, Australian policymakers to consider these moving forward. The argument that is commonly advanced in the U.S. is that where you have these large settlement amounts or if you are even aiming for compensation to you know, be going over 4% and closer to 100%, if that's even possible, is that a lot of the U.S. literature, I think, shows that these amounts are effectively borne by diversified groups of shareholders, which predominantly leads to arbitrary pocket-shifting funds transfers between what has been described to be innocent groups of shareholders. And this mainly benefits our insurance companies, litigation funders, and class action law firms, and not necessarily our investors. So I think that this is something, you know, as a take-home message, I think, you know, this conversation already happens in the U.S., but I think there's still challenges with how do you overcome this in any case. And I think that this conversation needs to happen more frequently and perhaps start in Australia. And I think that also just this concept of looking at deterrence and the fact that deterrence can be achieved in numerous ways, not just with increasing the intensity of enforcement, but also with looking at those who are targeted by those enforcement actions. So when they are properly targeted, this is likely to have a deterrent impact on future misconduct. And I know that in an article, I forget the which specific article, but I know Jill Fish in the U.S. context asserted that corporate decision makers who anticipate bearing the costs of securities fraud will then ex ante internalize those costs and engage in more efficient levels of care to ensure that their disclosures are accurate. 
So I think the absence of compensation is not dispositive, given that at least in the argument I've advanced, or at least from the empirical results, deterrence and signaling aims can still be achieved without full compensation. And so I think that that's really important. I think another takeaway message is that when you have uh, limitations on DNO insurance and indemnification, that can be a valuable policy and legislative mechanism to increase the deterrent effect of these actions. So I would say something that that's something that I think comparatively other jurisdictions might want to look a little bit to the Australian system for, just the fact that we do have quite clear limitations on the coverage of both of those things. So that helps even if you don't have a high penalty, even if you don't have full compensation, if you do have some sense that, you know, your agents are going to have to have even a minor out-of-pocket payment arising from an action, I think that that is another valuable takeaway point perhaps from the Australian system. And another one I think that is interesting is just this this role of litigation funders in the Australian context. So this has been, you know, allowed or judicially approved since 2006, but now we've seen this boom of these, like these are publicly listed companies that have come into the Australian market and are really incentivizing this litigation as far as I can, you know, see. They actually, anecdotally, there are, are many news reports of that you get these litigation funders approaching potential shareholders and investors and saying, you know, let's bring an action, we'll fund it, you know, you speak to these lawyers and let's get this started because they are getting, in some cases, 40% of the settlement amount from the litigation that ensues. So I think that that's something really important to keep an eye on. And to my mind, I actually thought that these didn't exist in the US and the UK, but this is not a part of this study. But just interestingly, when I looked into this, it looks like these litigation funders do exist in the US context and in the UK context, even though they don't have the same level of importance within these actions. I think it's interesting that they are still stepping in to fund these actions. And people have said that this raises conflict of interest issues and that perhaps we need more regulation around it. And this we see in the Australian context. One more takeaway is that since the publication of this article, the Australian federal government has announced changes to the corporation's regulations, which remove the previous exemption by which litigation funders avoided the requirements of having to hold an Australian financial services license. So because their absolute growth here and just, you know, people view them as being out of control, our treasurer said in, you know, just this was a couple months ago, said the, the removal of these exemptions will now require these litigation funders to obtain an Australian financial services license and they will be obligated to now act honestly, efficiently and fairly, maintain an appropriate level of competence to provide financial services. So I think that those are just some of the, the points that we might take away from this and think about and also form interesting avenues for future research. Our guest today has been Jennifer Varsley, Assistant Professor of Law at Durham University and a researcher at Cambridge University. We've discussed her article, The Effectiveness of Disclosure Law Enforcement in Australia, which is forthcoming in the Journal of Corporate Law Studies. I'll link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Jennifer, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app. 
or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.